Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer in Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Astounding Stories 7, July 1930, by Various Earth the Marauder Beginning a three-part novel by Arthur J. Burks Forward Despite the fact that for centuries the secret of life had been the possession of children of men, the Earth was dying. She was dying because the worms of the sun was fading, because with the obliteration of the oceans in order to find new land upon which man might live, her seasons had become stormy, unbearably cold and dreary. And the very fact of her knowledge of the secret of life, in which men numbered their ages by centuries instead of by years, was her undoing. For when men didn't die, they multiplied beyond all counting, beyond all possibility of securing permanent abiding places. One man, in the days when the earth was young, and man lived at best to the age of three score years and ten, could have given time and opportunity populated a nation. Now, when men lived for centuries, eternally youthful, their living descendants ran into incalculable numbers. The earth, strange paradox, was dying because it had learned the secret of life. Twenty centuries before, the last war of aggression had been fought, in order that an overpopulated nation might find room in which to live. Now all the earth was one nation, speaking one tongue and there were no more lands to conquer. Chapter 1 Sarka In his laboratory atop the highest peak in the venerable Himalayas lived Sarka, considered by the world to be its greatest scientist, despite his youth. His grandfather, who had watched the passing of eighteen centuries, had discovered the secret of life, and thoughtlessly in the light of later developments, broadcast his discovery to the world. The genius of this man, who was also called Sarka, had been passed on to his son, Sarka II, and by him in even greater degree to Sarka III, called merely Sarka for the purposes of this history. Had Sarka lived in the days before the discovery of the secret of life, People of that day would have judged him a young man of twenty. His real age was four centuries. Behind him, as he sat moodily staring at the gigantic revolving burial, 
stood a woman of most striking appearance. Her name was Jaska, and according to ideas of the days before the discovery, she seemed a trifle younger than Sarka. Her hand, unadorned by jewelry of any kind, rested on Sarka's shoulder as he studied the revolving barrel, while her eyes, whose lashes matching her raven hair, was like the wings of tiny blackbirds, noted afresh the wonder of this man. What is to be done? she asked him at last, and her voice was like music there in the room where science performed its miracles for Sarka. Warily, Sarka turned to face her, and she was struck anew, as she had been down the ears since she had known this man. Every time their glances met at the mighty curve of his brow, which rendered insignificant his mouth, his delicate nose of the twitching nostrils, the well-deep eyes of him. Something must be done, he said gloomily, and that soon, for unless the children of men are provided with some manner of territorial expansion, they will destroy one another. Only the strongest will survive, and we shall return to the days when the waters covered the earth, and monstrous creatures bellowed from the primeval slime. You are working on something? she asked softly. For a moment he didn't answer. While she waited, Jaska peered into the depths of the revolving barrel which represented the earth. It was fifty feet in diameter and in its curved surface and entrancing depths was mirrored in this latest development of Teleview, all the earth and the doings of its people. But Jaska scarcely saw the fleeting images, the men locked in conflict for the right to live, the screaming, terror-stricken women. This was now a century-old story, and the civilization of Earth had almost reached the breaking point. No, she scarcely saw the things in the barrel, for she had read the hint of a vast, awesome secret in the eyes of Sarka, and wondered if he dared even tell her. If the people knew, he whispered, they would do one of two things. They would tear me limb from limb and hurl the parts of me outward into space forever or they would demand that I move before I am ready and cause a catastrophe which could never be rectified and this grand old earth of ours will be dead indeed. And this secret of yours? Jaska now spoke in the sign language which only these two knew, for there were billions of other volant barrels in the world and words could be heard by universal radio by any who cared to listen. And always, they knew, the legions of enemies of Sarka kept their ears open for words of Sarka, which could be twisted around to his undoing. I shouldn't tell even you, he answered, his fingers working swiftly in their secret, silent language, which all the world could see but which only these two understood. For if my enemies 
knew that you possessed the information there is nothing they would stop at to make you tell. But I wouldn't tell, Sarka, she said softly. You know that. He patted her hands, and the ghost of a smile touched his lips. No, he said. You wouldn't tell. Some day soon, and it must be soon if the children of men are not to destroy themselves, I will tell you. It's a secret that lies heavily on my heart. If I should make a mistake, chaos, catastrophe, eternal, perpetual dark, the children of men reduced to nothingness. A little gasp from Jaska, for it was plain that this thing Sarka hinted at was far and away beyond anything he had hitherto done and Sarka had already performed miracles beyond any that had ever been done by his predecessors. When my grandfather, went on Sarka moodily, perfected in this self-same laboratory the machinery by which the waters of the oceans could be disintegrated, our enemies called him mad and fought their way up these mountain slopes to destroy him. With the pack at his doors, he did as he had told them he would do, though they hurried swiftly into the great valleys to colonize them, where oceans had been. They were like ravening beasts, and gave my grandfather no thanks. Our people have always fought against progress, have always been disparaging of its advocates. When the first Sarka discovered the secret, they would have destroyed him, though he made them immortal. If only the secret, interrupted Jaska, could be returned to him who discovered it, that would solve our problem, for men then would die and be buried, leaving their places for others. Again that weary smile on the face of Sarka. Take back the secret which is known today to every son and daughter of a woman. Impossible, more nearly impossible than the attainment of my most ambitious dream. And that dream? spoke Jaska with speeding fingers. I have wondered about you, said Sarka softly, while those eyes of his bored deeply into hers. We have been the best of friends, the best of comrades, but there are times when it comes to me that I don't know you entirely, and I have many enemies. You mean, gasped the woman, for the moment forgetting the secret sign manual, you think it possible that I, I might be one of your enemies in secret? Jaska, I don't know. But in this matter, in my mind, I trust no one. I am afraid even that people will read my very thoughts, though I have learned to so concentrate upon them that not the slightest hint of them shall go forth telepathically to my enemies. I don't mind death for myself, but our people must be saved. It's hideous to think that we have been given the secret of life, only to perish in the end because of it. I'm sorry, Jaska, but I can't tell no one. 
but Jaska, one of the most beautiful and intelligent of Earth's beautiful and intelligent women, seemed not to be listening to Sarka at all. And when he had finished, she shrugged her shoulders slightly and prepared to leave. He followed her to the nearest exit dome, built solidly into the side of his laboratory, and watched her as she slipped swiftly into the white, skin-tight clothing, marked on breast and back with the red lily of the house of Cleric. His eyes still were deeply moody. He helped her don the gleaming metal helmet in whose scalpel was set the anti-gravitational ovoid, invented by Sarka II, used now of necessity by every human creature, and strode with her to the outer exit, a door of ponderous metal sufficiently strong to prevent the inner warmth of the laboratory getting out or the biting cold of the heights to enter and studied her still as she buckled about her hips her own personal sarka belt, which automatically encased her, through contact with her tight clothing, with the warmth and balanced pressure of the laboratory, which would remain constant as long as she wore it. With a nod and a brief smile, she stepped to the metal door and vanished through it. Sarka turned gloomily back to his laboratory, looking into the depths of the revolving barrel and adjusting the enlarging device which brought back life-size the infinitesimal individuals mirrored in the barrel he watched her go a trim white figure which flashed across the void from mountain top to her valley home like a very white projectile from another world very white and very precious but when she was home and had waved to him that she had arrived safely, he forgot her for a time and allowed his eyes to study the inner workings of this vast, crowded world, whose onrushing fate was so filling his brain with doubt, with fear and something of horror. Chapter 2 The People of the Hives Moodily Sarka stared into the depths of the barrel, which represented the earth, and in which he could see everything that earthlings did, after visually enlarging them, through use of a microscope that could be adjusted, with a relation to the barrel, to bring out in detail any section of the world he wished to study. His face was utterly sad. The people at last truly possessed the earth, all of it that was, even with the aid of every miracle known to science habitable. The surface of the earth was one vast building, like a hive, and to each human being was allotted by law a certain abiding place. But men no longer died, unless they desired to do so, and then only when the spokesmen of the gents saw fit to grant permission and there soon would be no place for the newborn to live. Even now, that point had practically been reached throughout the world, and in the great portion it had been reached and passed, and men knew that while men didn't die, they could be killed. The vast building towering above what had once been the surface of the earth, to heights undreamed of before the discovery, 
was irregular on its top, to fit the contour of the earth, and its roof, constructed of materials raped from the earth's core, was so designed as to catch the and concentrate the early, more feeble rays of the sun, so that its life-giving warmth might continue to be the boon of living people. It had been found as Earth could that life was possible to a depth of eight miles below the one-time surface, so that the one huge building extended below the surface to this great depth, and was divided and redivided to make homes for men, their wives, and their progeny. But even so, space was limited. Neighboring families outgrew their surroundings, overflowed in the habitation of the neighbors. And every family was at constant war against its neighbors. Men didn't die, but they could be slain, and there was scarcely a home above or below in all the vast building, which hadn't planned and executed murder, times and times, or which hadn't left its own blood in the dwelling places of neighbors. No law could cope with this intolerable situation, for men down the ages had changed in their essential characteristics but little, and recognized one law only in their extremity, that of self-preservation. So there was murder rampant, and mothers who wept for children, husbands, fathers, or mothers who would never return to their homes. My grandfather, whispered Sarka, his eyes peering deeply into a certain area beyond that assigned by law to the house of Cleric, where men of two neighboring families were locked in mortal, silent conflict, shouldn't have frustrated the mad scheme of dailies. It was slaughter, wholesale and terrible, but it would have cleansed the souls of the survivors. Mentally, Sarka was looking back now to that red day when Dalis, the closest scientific rival of Sarka I, had come to Sarka I with his proposal, which at the time had seemed so hideous. Sarka remembered that interval in all its details for he had heard it many times. Sarka, Dalis had said in his high-pitched voice, staring at Sarka the first out of red-rimmed fiery eyes, unless something is done, the world will rush onto self-destruction. Men will slay one another. Fathers will kill their sons and sons their fathers, if something is not done. For always there is marrying and giving in marriage, and each family is reaching out in all directions, seeking merely space in which to live. Formerly there were wars which automatically took thought of the hour plus of man, but today the world is at peace, as men regard the term, and every man's hand is against his neighbor. There will be no more wars when there should be. There is but one alternative. And that? Sarka I had queried suspiciously. The segregation of the fittest. The destruction, swiftly, painlessly, of all the others. And when the survivors had again repopulated the earth to overflowing, a repetition of the same corrective. Men will die, yes, by millions. 
but those who are left will be a stronger, sturdier race, and by this process of elimination, century by century, man will evolve and become Superman. And this plan of yours? For a moment Dalis had paused, breathing heavily, as though almost afraid to continue. Then, while Sarka the First had listened in frozen terror, Dalis had explained his ghastly scheme. If it were not for the mountains and the valleys, said Dalis, and the world were perfectly round and smooth of surface, that surface would be covered by water to the depth of one mile. Is that not correct? The earth, rotating on its axis, travels about the sun at the rate of something like nineteen miles per second, so perfectly balanced that the oceans remain almost quiescent in their beds. But Sarka, mark me well, if we could together devise a way to hold this rotation for as much as a few seconds, what would happen? What would happen? repeated Sarka the first, dropping his own voice to a husky, frightened whisper. Why, the oceans would be hurled out of their beds, and a wall of water a mile high or more, is all guesswork, would rush eastward around the world, bearing everything before it. It would uproot and destroy buildings, sweep the rocky covering of the earth free of soil, and humanity, caught on the earth below the highest level of the world's greatest tidal wave, would be engulfed. Exactly, Dalis had said with a grin. Exactly. Only the people we wish to survive could be warned, and this could either be aloft when the tidal wave swept the face of the earth, or could be safely out of reach of the waters on the sides of the highest mountains. Sarka the first, only smiling, catching his breath at last, now that he realized the utter impossibility of this mad scheme, had been minded to humor the fancies of a man whom he had believed not quite sane. Why not, he began, take away from men the secret of life, so that they will die as formerly, when the world was young, when all the world knows the secret, when even children learn it before they are capable of walking, demanded Daly sarcastically. You could only remove knowledge of the secret from the brains of men by removing those brains themselves. Your thought is more terrible even than mine, because it leads to the inescapable conclusion. But supposing for a moment your mad scheme were possible, we should say whom, of all the Earth's people, should be saved, whom sacrificed. What better test could be given than that which I am proposing? Dalis had snarled. Those worthy of being saved would save themselves. Those who would perish wouldn't be worth saving. As natural, as inescapable as the law of the survival of the fittest, which has been an axiom of life since men first crawled out of the slime, and asked each other questions as they caught their first glimpses of the stars and pondered the reasons for them. But where, then, was there any point in my giving to people the secret of life? Have you paused to think, snapped Dalis, you would never have done so. Your lust for power and for fame destroyed your foresight. 
and is it not Dalis? replied Sarka the Frost softly. For this, really, that you have come to me, to berate me, to throw at my head mad schemes impossible of accomplishment? I have always known you for an enemy, Dalis, because you are envious of what I have accomplished. What you sense that I will accomplish as time passes. I don't love you, Sarka, retorted Dalis frankly. I despise you, hate you, but I need the aid of that keen brain of yours. You see, hate you though I may, I do your honor still. I have something up here, tapping the dome of his brow only less lofty than that of Sarka, which you lack. You have something I haven't, never can attain. But together we are complements, each of the other, and to the two of us this scheme is possible. I'm very busy, Dalis, Sarka the Frost had replied coldly. I must ask you to leave me. What you propose is impossible, unthinkable. So, retorted Dalis, you think me mad. You think me incapable of perfecting this plan about whose details you haven't even yet been informed. You would show me the door as though you were a king and I a slave. When kings and slaves vanished from the earth millenniums ago, then listen to me, Sarka. I know how to do these things about which I have told you. I can hold, for a brief moment only, the world of the earth about its axis, and by so doing I can flood the earth with the waters of the oceans. If you will not listen to me, I shall do it myself. You shall have two days in which to give me an answer, for I admit that I need you, who would balance me, make sure I made no fatal mistakes. But if you don't, I will act, along the lines I have hinted, apparently as unconcerned as though he hadn't just listened to a scheme for almost total depopulation of the world, the destruction of millions upon millions of lives, Sarka the First had dismissed Dalis, who had straightway used all his offices to arouse the world of science against the first Sarka. But when the two days of grace given by Dalis had passed, there were no oceans, for Sarka the First had been planning for a century against the time when the earth must of necessity be overpopulated and had worked and slept in his laboratory against the contingency which had developed. He had smiled, though there was a trace of fear on his face after Dalis had left, for his scheme had been worked out, not to destroy, but to save. And from this same laboratory in which Sarka now sat and pondered on the next step in man's expansion, Sarka the first had in fear and trembling at first but with his confidence growing by leaps and bounds, worked his own miracle, untoned millions and billions of rays, whose any portion of which, coming in contact with water, immediately separated its hydrogen and oxygen, thus disintegrating its molecules, were hurled forth from their storehouses beneath the laboratory, across the faces of the mighty oceans of Earth, and when men saw the miracle, they rushed into the mighty valleys where the oceans had been and began to build new homes. 
That had been centuries ago, scores of centuries. Now all the Earth, all the livable part of the Earth above its surface and below it to the depths of miles, was filled with people, like bees in a monster hive, like ants of antiquity in their warrant hills, and there was no place now that they could go. So they fought amongst themselves for the right to live. But my grandfather was right, Sarka almost screamed it, speaking aloud in the silence of his laboratory. My grandfather was right, Dalis was wrong, Science should be the science of life, not of death. Whither shall we go? Where now shall we find places for our people who are daily being born in myriads to live and love and flourish? But there was no answer, only the humming of the perpetually revolving burial, which showed to the sad eyes of Sarka that the people of his beloved Earth were rushing onward to chaos, unless... If only I could be sure about Jaska, he moaned. If only my courage were as great as that of which I stand in need. For if I fail, even Dalis, had he succeeded with that scheme of his in grandfather's time, would be less a monster, less a criminal. End of section 3「ジョイン・ミー・アン・マイ・フェロー・ガイド・ジョン・チャドウィック」「アスウィー・タイク・ユー・オン・アフォーナイト・ツアー・オブ・イン・スミス」「ウィー・ヴィジット・プレイス・サチュース・デ・ピクチャー・ハウス」「デ・ライブリー・アン・イン・スミス・ミュージアム」「トゥ・ディスカス・オール・アスペクト・オブ・ウィー・ア・フィクション」「ウェザー・イ・ビー・ブック・フィルム・ミュージック・アート」「アスウェルズ・ザ・ウィー・ストップ・オーバー・アッド・ギルマン・ハウス」「トゥ・ハブ・アッチャット・ウィー・ザ・レジデン・ゲスト」「アッチャット・ウィー・ザ・レジデン・ゲスト」Artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecrafty and creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth. BC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Read. Review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know,、uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. 
prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Radio. 